Amen. Oh, oh, to be taught by our Lord himself again. Let's go to his word. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Let us pray. Oh, Father, again we come before you today and we give you all glory and praise and honor for you and you alone are worthy. Father, we pray that you'd be blessed during this time. We ask that you be with the preacher now as he preaches and teaches us and expounds upon your word, which you have given us to reveal yourself to us and your will to us and build us up. Lord, may all who hear, Lord, be built up and edified by your spirit, by your word, Lord. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, just wondering if anybody uh, saw the sunrise this morning. I don't know if you got to see that. You think of scriptures. You think of the Lord God. Howard expounded on it this morning in, in uh, Bible study. Just his creation. And this morning it was literally stunning. Just such a beautiful, I mean, the you in the clouds. It was, it was just amazing and stunning. And I, I came upstairs and I told Wendy, I said, man, you just think of how God's handiwork is declaring his glory. Just think of that. What a beautiful, amazing thing. Not only does he cause the sun to rise and to set, but he makes it so glorious and beautiful. It's a stunning, amazing thing. Noah Webster once defined the word contrast as the placing of opposite things in view to exhibit the superior excellence of one to the more advantage. And one of the things that we see in Holy Scripture, brethren, is that God himself has perpetually woven throughout the pages of sacred scripture an abundance of what we would call holy contrasts. Why would he do that? Well, he did that again because to teach his people, brethren, that spiritual things that are different are not the same. Do you understand that Howard was using a whole bunch of just terminology this morning that absolutely made sense, but it's so simple and yet... A five-year-old knows that spiritual things that are different are not the same. Amen? For instance, God, by way of his preacher Isaiah, told his people, Woe unto them that call, and you can do it, evil, good, and good, evil. Woe unto them that call light, darkness, and darkness, light. Woe unto them that call bitter, sweet, and sweet, bitter. Well, what is God doing there? He's teaching his people. Now, you have to remember, that Isaiah in chapter 1, God has called his people to repentance. Amen? And he says this, and I'll quote the scripture there. He's telling his own people. Now listen again, we read that scripture and we apply it to the world. No, actually, God's applying that to his people. He says this of them. He calls them to repentance. And he says this he, he, in, in chapter 1. They have forsaken me. They have provoked the Holy One unto anger. They've all gone backwards, he says, concerning his own people. So he, he, he uses this, he instructs them not to conflate. And again, there's going to be some interesting words that we use this morning. Not to conflate, not to blend together in error. And again, these are his people he's speaking to. Not to conflate these things that he just said, good and evil, darkness and light, bitter and sweet. It's an amazing thing. Now, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who kept in perfect communion with his Father, amen, at all times, every way, every time, every day, every hour, every scintilla, 
He also taught with great contrast. And again, we think of these things in, in our minds, right, of what the scripture has to say concerning. He placed opposite things in view to show the superiority of the one against the other. Now think about this for a moment, brother, and I can say it, Matthew chapter 7. As soon as you hear this, he contrasted the narrow gate with the wide gate, amen? And we see this in scripture, amen? It's an amazing thing. There's a, there's a glorious purpose why God does this. He contrasted the broad way that leads to destruction with the narrow way that leads to life. And again, we see this glorious contrast that the Lord Jesus, he contrasted the many to the few. Think of that for a moment, brother. And again, I'm laying this out here because this is precisely what the Apostle Paul does in our text this morning. He keeps in perfect fellowship with the Father. He keeps in perfect fellowship with the Son. And again, this teaching is so glorious when you consider it. He the Lord Jesus contrasted a good tree with a bad tree, a corrupt tree. It goes on and on and on it goes, amen? Good fruit with bad fruit or evil fruit. He contrasted the wise man with the foolish man. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching those who are assembled, those who are gathered around him. He's saying that spiritual things that are different are not the same. And again, you say to yourself, a five-year-old knows that. I know that, but why doesn't the church know that? Why is the church trying to look like the world? Why are they trying to act like the world? Why are they trying to be like this, brethren? I ask myself that quite regularly, why the church is bent on doing these sorts of things. Again, the Apostle Paul in our text, he does the same thing. The Spirit of God leads him, amen, to illuminate distinctive contrast, to place opposite things in view, to show the superiority of and the more advantage of the one. Look there at verses 13 and 14. We're going to read this together. And again, this, this seems like it's such a short verse, like it's not going to take much. But brethren, there is depth here like you can't believe. In fact, I had to, I had to kind of back off a little bit because it was really starting to get down deep. Look there, if you would, at verse number 13. We'll read them together and then we'll kind of work our way through, these, through this text. He uses that first word, but, which, which is... You know what but is right here? It's a contrasting word. It's, he's going to contrast what he's already said with what he's about to say. And this is why, again, you lay the ground where God did it, the Son did it, Noah Webster defined it in such a way biblically for us to understand this. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. There, and again, brethren, this is the, that's the distinguishing mark that we're going to see for sure. Amen. And belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, again, brethren, as you study this out, as you look at the text and you try and grasp and get a hold of what he's actually saying. But again, as I said, in verse 13, Paul begins with a word that's going to contrast what he has said previously to us to what he is about to say. Now, Paul says here that he's bound, that he is absolutely bound, just like he did in chapter 1, that he's obligated, that he's compelled once again to thank God for his effectual work in the Thessalonians. There's just a constant theme. Paul looks at the church, he looks at those who have been saved, and he, again, he's bound, he's compelled to give thanks to God for God's effectual work. So in light of that effectual work, <laughs> it's an amazing, Paul takes us, into the holy classroom, if you will, this morning, of Soteriology 101. And you're looking at me going, Soteriology 101, I've never even heard that word. What is Soteri? It's like this morning, Howard was, again, defining in Bible study. Amen? Words. You don't want to dumb people down. You want to raise them up. So Soteriology 101, what is it exactly? Well, it's a systematic study of salvation. Soteriology, it's a word literally... Brethren, that has the idea of soter, soterion, kindred to soter. It means savior. In fact, if you look at verse 13, everything centers around God's actions, our actions. Look at verse 13, around this word, salvation. Look there, if you would, at verse number 13. We, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to what? To salvation, soteriology. And so there's a systematic, if you will. Verses 13 and 14 are filled. There's a plethora, a treasure trove, if you will, of systematically looking at this and who, it's, it's a stunning thing. 
In fact, soteriology systematically answers these questions. And again, we're, we're, we're going into the classroom here this morning. Where it's, the, it's theology. But again, as I told Howard this morning, amen, where's the application? The application's in the text. The application is in the text. That's where the application comes. And you see the Trinity of God at work, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, to apply these things to our lives. And so soteriology, listen. This is what it does, Soteriology 101. It answers this, these questions. Who saves us? How he saves us? Amen? Why we need saving? And then the purposes of why he saved us. And you, so you look at that and you see it. This is what Paul does in this very short text. It's, it reminds you of Romans 8, the golden chain of redemption. It's all linked together. And we'll see that here again this morning as we are studying this out. He, in verses 13 and 14, contrasts, Paul does. Again, what's the definition? The opposites are placed in view. This is what he's doing. He's talking to the brethren, and he's going to contrast what he has just said about those who follow the man of sin. There's a difference, you see. There's a difference between that and those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is simply saying, this is, these are the differences, and these are why the differences are there concerning these things. Now look what he says there in verse 13 again. Verse 13 and 14. We're going we're to spend the majority of our time here because, again, this is soteriology 101. This is a systematic look at what God does and his sole purpose in saving us. Look there at verse number 13 again. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren. Listen, beloved of the Lord. Now, brethren, again, this is a very important phrase that he uses he uses this enduring phrase, uh, beloved of the Lord. It literally means having been loved. A lot of times when you see beloved, you see the one that God has chosen. And there is some of that to the degree here. But this has to do with God's past actions towards you. And again, this is what's so important as we are going to see this together. Literally having been loved. Beloved of the Lord denotes again God's past actions that have, listen, an ongoing this is very, very important, brethren, when we consider our own selves. Just this week, just maybe, the, maybe some of the sin that came into our lives, some of the things that we've done. This is what we must consider. This is Paul's encouraging word to the brethren. It is an ongoing, it's a stunning thing, undying, undiminished, unadulterated, ongoing love for his people. This is literally what that word means. And uh, we're going to see again the glories of God's work here. In fact, we, we find this really, if you will, expressed in verse 16. Look at verse 16 of the text. And again, Paul is writing to men and women who are being persecuted heavily and struggling with different things in their lives. Look here, if you would, at verse 16. Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us. You see that? That goes back to God's past actions in eternity. And this again, Howard talked about, I told Howard this morning, Man, your sermon just, it just fits right in with what Paul is saying. And he said something like, well, you know, Shara asked me all the time, do you and Mike talk before? No, no, actually, it's just because it's the word of God and the continuity that we find there in the word of God. That's why when the preachers get up and they say the same thing and there's a constant theme that we see, they're getting that from the Bible, not from their own minds. That's why things are so consistent. And again, you see this, this past action. He loved us. Now look at, and have given us what? everlasting consolation that brother and that is an ongoing his actions in the past towards us and then there's this eternal he brings us to eternal glory which we're going to look at here in the text it is indeed brother and sisters you're going to you're going to know this definition god's ongoing his undying his undiminished his unadulterated love for his people and this is what Paul is going to bring out. In fact, one of my favorite verses, again, the Father keep, or, or the Son keeping in perfect unity, in perfect harmony with, with the Father. Look what Jesus says here in John chapter 13. And many of you know, I've preached on it. Look at John chapter 13. He says something to his people, his own, if you will, that, that uh, he makes a promise to them. And again, this is so encouraging to us as we consider this. Look at John chapter 13. And again, many of you know I've preached on this passage, but again, this is a glorious thing. Brethren, consider this for a moment again, as uh, you consider your own self just from this past week. That God, that the Lord Jesus Christ will love you to the end. 
Do you understand that? This, brethren, is such an encouraging thing, and this is what Paul is doing to the brothers at Thessalonica. Look at verse number one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having what? Loved his own, which were, with, which were in the world, he loved them unto the what? The end, unto the uttermost. In other words, now, when you consider what follows in John chapter 13, what Jesus now is going to express to them, uh, I'm leaving, number one. Uh, Judas, you're going to betray me. And Peter, by the way, you're going to deny you know me. And yet he says he loves his own to the end, knowing full well that Peter himself, who is one of his sheep, is going to deny even knowing him, and not once, not twice, but three times. This is what Paul is saying to the brethren. God's ongoing, undying, unadulterated, decreed love for his people will never change. How again, Howard, I'm sorry. I hate to keep, I gotta reference it again. God doesn't change. He's unchanging. His love towards you when he loved you in Christ is unchanging. And this is what Paul is going to say to the brothers here this morning. In fact, not only is this love given to us by God the Father, we are, brethren, to love one another in this way. You understand that, right? Look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus here in verses 34 and 35, he expands a little bit. He says, a new command I give unto you, that ye what? Love one another as I have loved you. Do you see that again? These are again Christ's past actions, how he's called his disciples, he's loved them. Now he's telling his own people, those who are indeed his own, he's telling them to love one another in such a way like this. You know what it means? And, and I was telling Howard this morning, we as pastors have very few friends. Literally. I'm not kidding. It's not like we have a lot of close friends. I have two very close friends. Close friends. Ones who would stick by me and have. Howard is one, Dean's the other. Who have stuck by me through thick and thin. But look into what he says. That ye also love one another. By this shall, ye know, uh, shall all men know that you are my disciples. And ye have love to one, one to another. What is that saying? It's the same love. He's talking about these past actions. It is indeed an ongoing, undying, undiminished, unadulterated decree love for one another. And again, brethren, this is what's missing. That's why people stick around for a couple of years and then depart. It says it's an amazing thing to behold, brethren, to study it out and to see it. It really, really is. In fact, Romans chapter 5. Let's just turn there real quickly. Again, we see this same pattern. It's such an encouragement to me as I was studying this out to, to uh, be able to you know, write this down and study it and meditate upon how God's love for me and God's love for his people, if you are one of his sheep, how it just is ongoing, undying, undiminished, unadulterated. I mean, it's a stunning thing. Look at here, Romans chapter 5. I want you to, again, to see this. Romans chapter 5. It's the same terminology. It's the same Understanding. Look at verse number six there, if you would. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for who? Well, the ungodly. That's every last one of us. Verse seven. And for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. <laughs> there's that but again. But God, there's the contrast right there, commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Again, salvation, this is what it's doing. And again, this is leading right to what Paul is teaching here. This is a systematic look at soteriology. What does it mean? Well, it means, brethren, that you and I, it is impossible for us, number one, to earn our salvation. Brethren, we live in a religious society today that is, that is adulterated with it. Amen? It's, it's a stunning thing. You cannot earn it, nor do we deserve it. And that's really, again, the thing that we have to understand. We deserve it only because of what Christ did. And God bestows this love, this ongoing, unadulterated, undiminished love for us. And it was decreed in eternity past. And we're going to see that here. It is God who first loved us in eternity. 
in which his decree results persist. These decreed results are ongoing, as I said, and that he will, brethren, listen, love his own to the very end. And again, this is the encouraging thing. This is what we want to understand concerning this. Now, look what he says there back in verse number 13. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse number 13. He says more, and again, brethren, this is such a deep, deep thing for us to consider. But again, I pray that it's encouraging to you, that the Spirit of God will send encouragement out to you. Amen, as he did to me when I was studying this. Look what he says there. Look at verse 13. He's compelled to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. Again, there's a connection here to Howard's lesson this morning. It's a stunning thing when you consider this, brother. Paul says here that from the beginning, literally, at the time of God's decree in eternity. And this is what we have to understand and consider what Paul is saying to the brethren here. It's the same terminology. It's just like he went through this morning. There are, there are sayings in Scripture that teach us the eternality of God. The eternity, listen, living in eternity, always being, always has been, always will be. Our finite minds can't grasp that or understand that, but this is what he's saying. Paul says that from the beginning, it's the same words. It's the same phrase. It's the same terminology that John uses in John chapter 1 when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and He was with God in the beginning. That's eternity. So what's being said here, what's being uh, conveyed to us, brethren, is God's decision in eternity. Now this is really, really important as we consider this because what God does and what Paul will do here, he will again, he'll, he'll show the sovereign work of God and then what does he do? He, he comes along and he balances that with human responsibility. But he starts with God's sovereign work, his work off in eternity. What do we mean by that? Well, it was from the beginning, from the time of God's decree in eternity, that he settled on a special treasure for himself. This, brethren, is very important to understand and grasp. And just like Jacob and Esau, listen, brother, you think Paul put that in Romans, in the book of Romans, just for no reason? Just like Jacob and Esau, brethren, consider this for a moment. In eternity, before any of us did anything good, why would God say that before either one of those, those children did anything good? Because that will make you think you can earn salvation. That's why he said that. He Again, he's making this contrast. He's saying, before any of them were born, before they did anything good, I acted. And also, brethren, he also includes in that text, if you go and look there, or anything bad, which would cause one to think. Now listen, brethren, again, consider this. Which would cause one to think, like I'm sure Paul thought before the Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus to get over what the kind of man he is. That God could never save. That God could never forgive a man like me. Amen? So he uses both sides of that, that contrast. You're not good enough, you can't earn it, but also you can't be bad enough if God has decreed he's going to save you. Amen? And so this is what he's saying. This is God's action in eternity. It really is quite, like I'm going to say it over and over again, stunning. Now, we have to consider what Paul's saying. Again, in eternity, you think about, you try and wrap your mind around eternity. It's a stunning thing. I mean, God's always been, he's always been there, he always will be. And these decrees were made in eternity. Before you were born, before I was born, before Jacob was born, before Esau was born, before anyone was born. Whether you think you did something good to earn it, or whether you think you're so bad that God would never forgive you in eternity, he settled on you if you're saved this morning. This is what Paul is saying to us. It's really a glorious thing. In fact, the word chosen that's used there, and again, this is important, brother, is not the normal word that we think of when we think of God's selection. Now, it certainly entails that, but that's not really the meaning of this word here. It's laced with many things. It's not the typical word of his selecting. This word denotes God's eternal purposes in adoption. And again, brethren, how many times have we talked about this? You have no control over who adopts you. You have no say over any of that. This, is, again, is the Father. This, this is the idea. It denotes God's eternal purpose and adoption. He, in other words, think of this, brethren. He took you for himself. Think about this for a moment. To make you his very own. Think about this. He took you for himself to make you his very own. Do you, do you see? Do you understand the, the depth of that statement? 
and what that literally means. Let me show you what it means in Deuteronomy. Look there if you would, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Look there, just a couple of scriptures, an Old Testament one, and again, to prove, well, to systematically understand, not to prove, but to systematically understand that God doesn't change. His theology doesn't change. His, 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 his thinking, his understanding, his nature, his being does not change. Look here if you would. He chose you for himself to be his very own. Think of that for a moment, brother, and what that really means. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, one text in the Old Testament. We'll look at one glorious one in the New Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, look at verse number 6. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. What? Unto himself. Amen? Above all people that are upon the face of the earth. You see the actions of God there. He, again, he chose you. That's the idea of his love in the past. Those actions in the past lead up to what he's done here with the nation of Israel. He's chosen these people not because they were good, not because they were bad. In fact, he goes on, doesn't he? He describes, look at verse number 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. Do you see that again? That's God's past actions. That's what's going on there. And then we'll see the results of those past actions. They have an ongoing, unchanging, unadulterated, undiminished love. And again, this is what he's saying. Because he would keep an oath which he swore unto our fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's an amazing thing. Now look, again, brethren, we can, well, I want to look, look at Ephesians chapter 1. Again, same terminology that's used. And again, this is not the normal word that we think of of God choosing. And again, God obviously chooses, but here this word means it's more tied to adoption. It's, a, it's what God does. He's choosing you to be his own because you can't choose to be adopted. Amen. And look here, Ephesians chapter 1, again, a very familiar portion of scripture to us. Look at verse number 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before what? The foundation of the world. There you go again, Howard. There's that terminology that's used, brothers and sisters. There it is. Off in eternity, before anything ever was, God made this choice, his actions, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame and before him in love, having predestinated us unto the what? Adoption of children. Again, this is the idea. This is what Paul is telling the brother in Thessalonica. You've been chosen by God to be his very own, to be adopted by him above everyone else. Think of that, brethren, for just a moment. He says there, adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Again, the choosing, the taking is done by him, and he chooses you to be his very own. A special treasure, as certainly the Bible tells us there. Now, again, we consider this. Look back at chapter 2, verse 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse number 13 there. Again, as we spend just a moment here in this verse. Again, there's so many soteriological things in this verse. I mean, it's again, it just lays it out here for us. Look there at verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. Now again, brethren, a very important phraseology, if you will, that Paul uses here. Paul states the purpose of God's actions. Salvation, it is the child of God's deliverance. Listen, from eternal death and damnation. This is what salvation is. It is God saving us from eternal death and damnation. A very vivid contrast. Remember, we started out there, a very vivid contrast to those who, in their loyalty, have given themselves wholly and wholehearted to the man of sin, what, he, what, what Paul has just been talking about in the verses earlier. Look at verse 10. Look at verse number 10, the verse earlier, right here it says this. Here the Bible says that he's chosen us to salvation through sanctification. Look what he says there in verse 10. With all deceitfulness and righteousness in them that perish. There it is. There's the contrast. Those who are saved, those who are perishing. 
This is what he says. Because they received not the, not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And so again, we see this contrast that Paul is doing. He's simply saying, here's what the devil's children look like. Here's what you look like. Here's what's happened to you as far as uh, the, being a child of God. Here's what is happening to the children of the devil. He's contrasting them. He's showing what a glorious thing it is that God has done. He uses this contrast, one against the other, when you consider that. Look at verse 12. Not only are they perishing, and again, salvation is the deliverance from perishing. It's from being damned. Look at verse 12. They that, all might, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So again, we see this glorious contrast. Again, brethren, you, you would think, uh, okay, a five-year-old knows this, amen? But why does God continually have to say this to his people? There is a difference. Because again, his people on occasion get relaxed. They settle down. They might shut the word of God. They might live according to their own understanding. And this is what happens. Pretty soon they start to look like everybody else. They start to smell like everybody else. And God says, no, there's a difference between light and dark. Amen? Good and evil, sweet and bitter. Amen? So this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's making this contrast. He's showing this direct contrast between them. Now, Paul tells the brethren that God chose them to salvation through sanctification. <laughs> and now, brethren, again... Here we go again, right? No repentance. This is what's being taught. It's a stunning thing, brethren, when you consider this. These two, listen, salvation and sanctification go together like Siamese twins who have been cemented together. Yet they are inseparable. They go together. Salvation and sanctification go together. You can't say I'm saved and look like them and smell like them and act like them and be like them. No, brother. Sanctification is a stunning thing. In fact, it is the Spirit's act of setting the elect apart, separating them from the world unto God for his sacred purposes. You see this? In fact, Paul, as you remember, already touched on this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we don't have to go there. I'll give you the verse 3, 4, and 7. He talked about our sanctification, a setting apart unto God. And this is how we, again, are contrasted to the world. To be sanctified is a holy state in which one's affection are purified and alienated from unrighteousness. This is the idea here, amen? We've been made holy. We are alienated from those things that are unrighteous, amen? In fact, that is God's glorious purpose when you consider this. Again, a very vivid contrast to those whom Paul was speaking of earlier in the text. We are separated from unrighteousness. Look what Paul says they are. Look there, if you would, again, in verse 12. Verse 12 delineates a lot. Uh, concerning that contrast. Look at that. That they might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in what? In unrighteousness. Now, brethren, I understand we all struggle with sin. We all wrestle with this stuff. But what is our response when one falls, when one trips up? What is our response? Are we, do we revel and say, I love unrighteousness? No, actually, the true child of God will go, I've been called to righteousness. I love righteousness. I slipped and fell. Oh, Lord, please help me not to do that again. Not these. He's contrasting. They love unrighteousness. Amen? So we see this great and glorious contrast between the child of God and the child of the devil. And again, what does this do? Well, the application's in the text. If you love unrighteousness, you better check yourself. Amen? You better look and ask God and say, God, why am I drawn to this? Why do I like this? Why do I seem like I'm living like this? There might be a deeper problem. Now, if you look there, brother, and again, Paul was constantly doing this. In fact, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Back up there just a little bit. Again, he, it was just a glorious teaching. Again, the father taught it, used it. The son used it. Paul's, or all of his preachers used it. But look what he does here again. He creates this contrast. He says, what do we have in common with these things? What do we have? Look at verse number, if you will, verse uh, 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with who? Unbelievers. For what, hath, what fellowship hath righteousness with what? Unrighteousness. None. Why are we trying as a church to yoke ourselves together with this stuff? Look what he, he continues on there. And what communion hath light with 
Darkness. <laughs> there it is again. There's that glorious contrast. He's telling us, look, if we look at ourselves according to Scripture and we, we, we like unrighteousness and we like darkness, there's a problem. He continues. Look at what he says there. And what concord hath Christ with who? Belial, the devil, the worthless one. None. He's, again, he's making this glorious contrast there. He says, or what part hath he... Uh, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from amongst them, my brothers. This is what he says. He tells them to come on out. Again, just like, just like Isaiah did. Just like God said to him through Isaiah back in the Old Testament again. This is where it comes from. Come out from them, my, my sisters and my brothers, my people. You are not supposed to conflate. You are not supposed to mix by error that which I have called wrong with that which I have called right. And again, brethren, this is why many churches get into trouble with their theology and with their teaching and everything else because they are not following Scripture and doing it as we can say. Brethren, can I say it again? Spiritual things that are different are not the what? Same. We are not. Look what he says there again. He brings out another glorious contrast in verse 13. Again, this is why we spent so much time here. Spent so much time here. Look at verse 13. Look at the other contrast he brings out. He's bound to give thanks, always unto God, beloved of the Lord, God's past actions and their ongoing decreed results, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit, and what? Belief of the truth. Now, brethren, again, Howard, I, I, I could have just played your message up here this morning. I could have just played it because, again, what was the, the whole context of Howard's Bible study this morning is knowing God, understanding God, knowing Him from where? The Bible, biblically. Not in my own mind, not in my own understanding, but what does the Bible say concerning Him? And this really is is so important, if you will. Now, brothers, just as the Holy Ghost is the agent of one's sanctification, Paul says here, it's an amazing thing, that the entryway into that sanctification is by belief of the truth. It is indeed by believing and having faith in the truth, believing the saving gospel of Christ. This, of course, as I said, is another direct and vivid contrast to those whom Paul had just spoken of earlier, those who are following the man of sin. Look there again at verse 12. Verse 12 is just littered with it. Look at verse 12. Look what it says. That they might be damned, amen, there's the opposite of those who are saved, who believe not the truth. There it is. The difference between one who is saved, a child of God, is that God has opened their mind. He's opened their eyes. He's unstopped their ears. He's allowed them by the Spirit of God to believe the truth, to understand the truth. In fact, listen to what the Lord Jesus said. Look at John chapter 17 again, as we just systematically listen to the Bible. Look at, look at, listen to the Jesus' words, his own words, as they all are, but he specifically in first person is speaking here. And I want you again to see what he says. The sanctification of the Spirit, being sanctified, being set apart, believing the truth. Look there at verse 14. I have given them thy what? Word. And the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What's that next word? Sanctify them. Amen? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Again. You can't shut your Bible and be sanctified. You can't do it. You have to read the Scripture and say, what sanctifies me? The word of truth, the separation from the world, all of these things that Paul is telling the brothers and sisters there in Thessalonica. This is the contrast. This is what it is. In fact, look at one more time. Look at one more time. Again, Jesus' words, Acts chapter 26. Again, himself speaking in first person. Again, we know this. The Scriptures are threaded and loaded with these, with these truths. But I want you to hear again what Jesus says from his own first person. Look there at verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, 
to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people, uh, delivering thee from the people from, and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from what? Darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, inheritance among them, that are what? Sanctified by the faith in me. So again, brethren, this is what we see. That's the sanctifying. That's the entrance into it. The Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work, believing the truth, as opposed to and in contrast to those who reject the truth, do not believe the truth. Brother, you brought up Hitchens this morning. Well, he he's died, I believe, about two years ago now. And one of his statements on his deathbed was, and he said it loud, and he told his wife, you make sure immediately when I die that there's none of this nonsense that I had some deathbed confession because I am not, I do not believe in God, even to the very end of his life. And his wife did exactly that, wrote a long article how he stayed faithful and true to what he believed, a lie, the lie. And it's an amazing thing when you think about that, brother, when you consider that. But again, we see God's work works in the past having this residual result, this ongoing, undying. And again, brother, the only reason you and I stay, the only reason we believe is because of God's ongoing blessing and work in our hearts and in our minds and our lives. That's it. We would do the same if it wasn't for his glorious work to begin with. We take note here, brethren, in our text, how Paul beautifully balances the work of the Spirit with the Word of God. I, and I'm not trying to you know, push our website. But go look about what we say about the Word of God. I like what one pastor said. The Spirit without the Word is mute. He has nothing to say. Think of this, brethren, for a moment. How many times have we said it from the pulpit? That if the Spirit of God isn't working through the Word, it's like bouncing off the wall. He says, the spirit without the word is mute. He has nothing to say, and the word without the spirit is lifeless. It does not act. The work of the spirit is always united with the work of the word of God. This is why we must continually be faithful to the word of God no matter what. When all else fails, turn to the word of God. Now, it, these two work together to convict and to convince. Listen, brethren, that's what I just said in other words. They too work together to convict and to convince the lost sheep of their need to believe in the truth. Again, opposite of what the men of sin and those who follow him do. Now look what he does here. Look back there at verse number 14. We'll move on to verse 14. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, but the reality of it is that these things are all, again, like the golden chain, they're all linked together. One begets the other, which begets the other, which causes the other, which is a glorious thing. Look at verse 14. Look what he says there. The Bible says, and Paul said, as the Spirit of God led him to write this unto the brethren, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, listen here. Paul breaks out again the good news to the brethren at Thessalonica because the gospel is what? It's good news. And he continues here again to draw them back to that. He says it was for this. It was for their salvation that God called them. He called them with his effectual call. And again, brethren, we do not have time to delve deep down into the general call. There's a general call that goes out, but there is indeed an effectual call that goes out to God's people. And they will indeed come and believe on the Savior. There is no question. He called them by his effectual call by way of the gospel, the good news. Listen, their eyes were opened. Their ears were unstopped supernaturally. You think they were just cruising along and one day said, hey, I think I'm just going to go ahead and do that. No, this was a supernatural work of God. The veil was removed. Their heart and hearts were softened. And as Jesus, as they, he said in Luke, their hearts burned within them as he opened the scriptures to them. I mean, think of that for a moment. Just think of the glorious work that the Spirit is doing through the Word of God here. It's an amazing thing. And the gate of their spiritual understanding was supernaturally unlocked and flung wide open. This, brethren, again, is is Paul directing the brethren to the sovereign work of God in their in the salvific work, in their salvation, verse 13, in their soteriology and what God is doing in this text. Now listen, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. Look what Paul writes to him, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want you to see this again. Keeping in mind that their hardened hearts were softened and 
burned within them. Their eyes were open. Their ears were unstopped. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy here. In fact, he's earlier in the text, he's speaking of this faith, this unfeigned faith that he knows is in Timothy because he can see it. He sees it at work. It was in your mother. It's in your grandmother. And I know it's in you. And then look what he says there in verse number 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be, thou not, uh, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Listen, verse 9. Who hath what? Saved us and called us. What kind of a call did he have? With an holy calling, not according to our own works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There's another phrase, amen? There's that other phrase of eternity. Brethren, again, can I say it? It's an amazing thing. Just like Jacob and Esau in eternity. I'll say it over and over and over again. Before any of us did anything good or anything bad, the Lord God moved in eternity and he chose a person a select group, if you will, the elect group, let me use that terminology for himself, a special treasure long before any decision you ever made. It is glorious. It is a stunning thing. And literally, again, that word that's phrased before the world began is at the time of God's decree in eternity. From the beginning, God settled a special treasure. He set it and took it for himself. Think of how encouraging that must have been to the brethren there especially when the world is doing to them what they were doing, persecuting them greatly. That's what we've seen, amen? And Paul just continues to tell them, in light of the Lord's coming, continue to be strong and faithful in the word of God. In fact, he, he speaks on that here in just a moment. In fact, God effectually calls his own, those whom he has indeed chosen to be his own, amen? To the ultimate end of their salvation, which is what? Their glorification in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look there at verse 14, at the end of verse 14. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at there again. This ultimately is the end of what God does. He brings it from, he saves one who's dead in their sins. He brings them all the way through to the end, which is the glorification of their selves. Look there, if you would, verse 14. Whereunto uh, he hath called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, very much in sync with Romans chapter 8, the golden chain of redemption. God starts here. He does all this work down to the end. And in the end, he glorifies you if you are indeed one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look what Paul does here in verse 15. This is what I love about it. He, again, it's, it's, it's always like that. This is what Paul does. When you, when you look at Paul's preaching, when you look at what the pattern of his preaching, you know how it goes over and over and over again? <laughs> he goes to theology first. Theology proper. Go look at Ephesians, Galatians. Go look at that. He starts with theology proper. And then you know what he does? Here's the theology, and here's then how it should affect you. This is the work of the Spirit. Here's, again, how can I go back? Amen. God never changes. And the only way to know this and to know how we are to live is by his word. He's revealed it in his word. And so, again, he doesn't change. And so, Paul, always there's theology and then there's the living out of that theology. Here's the effect it should have on us. And again, this is what Paul is doing. He speaks on the sovereignty of the work of God in his choosing and his uh, saving and his, all of the sanctification, all this stuff. And then, beautifully, he does this. In verse 15, he brings alongside, again, brethren, man's responsibility in that. We're not just a bunch of robots. <laughs> We're not just bouncing around. It is because of what God has done, then these things should follow. Yeah. Look what he says there in verse 15. Therefore, <laughs> again, brethren, not a contrast. He's just drawing our attention to what I've just said. Therefore, wherefore, it's connecting what he said to now what he's going to say. Brethren, look at, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. That is, again, Paul just beautifully bringing alongside the sovereignty of God, man's responsibility in it. Now, he uses some interesting language there. In fact, as I said, right, man's responsibility up to, next to God's sovereign effectual work. God loved, God chose, God called, he sanctified. Therefore, Paul commands them. 
You know, Paul didn't say, hey, brothers, I think you should do this. This is literally military terminology that he uses. He commands them, he says. It's an amazing thing when you, when you consider this. He commands the brethren to stand fast, to hold onto good biblical, whether it's traditions, which I understand there's bad traditions. Jesus spoke about that. Paul here is talking about good biblical traditions that are good for us. Amen? He's not talking about whether or not you celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. He's talking about things that are taught. The word of God here. He's talking about this. This glorious tradition. In fact, if you look there, both of these phrases are related to stability. <laughs> and brethren, we need stability. We need men and women to be stable in the faith. It literally means to stand. It means to remain rigid and stand firm. This is what he's saying. Because of what God has done, this is what we have to do. In fact, look at over there in chapter 3. He, he encourages them again in this tradition. Again, biblical, godly tradition. And so often us Baptists, we throw it out. We just want to throw it all out. It's all bad. No, actually there are good biblical traditions that we should follow, either by, by the word of God or other men. We talked about this morning a little bit. Other men, do you think they just came up with this stuff? No, they've studied, they've learned, they've done all these things. Look there, if you would, at verse 6. Now we what? Command you, brethren. <laughs> there it is. This is military terminology. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the what? The tradition which ye have received of us. And again, not all traditions are bad. You have to biblically ferret them out. You have to say that, 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 that's... That's bad, like Jesus did, amen? He said, you've taken man's traditions and placed them over what God has said. And we must never do that. We must always, the Lord must always be first. His word must always come first. In fact, look at one more here, and we're going to bring this to a close. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He, again, Paul can't help himself. Again, brethren, this is not just something where Paul's, well, brothers, can we have a discussion and we'll see if you think we should do it or not? No, it is not. It is a command unto the brethren. Look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Look there if you would at verse 13. All military language. Howard knew I was going there. <laughs> Listen to this. Military commands to the people of God. First, watch ye. In other words, be aware. Be, be aware of what's going on. Keep watching. He's coming. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. That's part of what he's saying. What's that next one? Stand fast in the faith. Be rigid. Be stationary. Do not move. Quit ye like men. <laughs> Brother Mark, that means we're to act like men. We're to act like good, godly, biblical men who are going to be rigid and we're going to stand firm, stationary in the, in the, in the faith. Look at what he says and be strong. Now, brother, this is what Paul is saying. He, he's, he's linking all of God, what God has done, all of the soteriology, why he saves us, who he saves us, for what purpose he saves us, all of these things. And then he says, because God did that, here again is man's responsibility in that, that you are to stand fast. When everybody else abandons the word of God, you stand fast. When everybody else abandons God, you stand fast fast. This again is what Paul is encouraging and he's saying in a military style to act like men and to be strong. Now look how Paul closes. He, as he always does, again, we got theology, we got again application in the text, we have living in life, how we live this out. And look what Paul says here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17. Look how glorious this is. He speaks in this manner. He does these great contrasts. He puts those things that are opposite so that the believers will see the superiority of the other. And then he closes with a benediction. Look what he does here. Look at verses 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, there it is again. Remember, we talked about that. That's that past action. That's continuing on to where? Giving us everlasting consolation. His actions in the past will bring us through everlasting 
consolation and good hope through grace. Now look at verse 17. What's that first word? Comfort. That's a great word. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good what? Word and work. Wow. What a glorious thing Paul does here for the brethren and for you and I this morning. He prays that the Thessalonians would be and have sustained grace and comfort during their trials and tribulations. This is what he's doing. And we notice, don't we? We saw the Trinity at work again here in our text. What does he do? He calls on the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father who are operating as one. <laughs> Again, this is, if you'd have been here this morning for Bible study, you'd have seen in the last few weeks for sure the Trinity and how they act as one. The Spirit working in our text, the Father working in our text, the Son working in our text, all as one. Paul calls on them here this morning, operating as one to sustain them in every good work and word. Think of that for a moment, brother. This is, again, the Lord working out his glorious works within the lives of his sheep. Our text tells us, as we close, our text tells us who saves us. God, God, God saves us. He, he called us on to salvation, didn't he? How he saves us. He saves us through the word by sanctification. This is what he does. Why we needed saving? Because we were in danger of death and perishing and, and eternal damnation, and therefore he saved us. See, this is soteriology 101. This is such a clear, systematic thing that we see. And the purposes for which he has saved us, he just told us. Every good word and work. This is the work of God in the life of a true believer. This is the great contrast that we see, brethren, between the children of the devil and the children of God. This is what Paul is doing. He's making this contrast. But this is how you look. This is how they look. Amen. This is what God has done. This is what the devil has done for them. Think of that for a moment, brethren, when we consider where we're at this morning in our text. And as Paul brings 2 Thessalonians to, call, to, to, uh, to a close, he, he calls on the brethren, hey, pray for us. <laughs> Amen. And so that's what we need to do for one another, brethren. We need to pray for us, even this week, brethren, as we have continued to see, and how can I say this, brethren, kindly, and with, uh, as I sent a text out this week to a dear brother of mine, one who I love beyond measure, who has fallen beyond what anybody could imagine. And I sent that text out to him. And I started it out with Galatians 6, verse 1. It is with the spirit of meekness and the considering of my own self. See, if you think it can't happen to you, it'll happen to you. You consider and say, yes, Lord, it happened to my good brother over here. I must, in the spirit of meekness, consider my own self. Yes. It isn't just him. It's three other brothers in the last year that I've seen this happen to. This is a stunning thing, brother. Again, restoration is going to be a process. <laughs> but if you're a child of God, he will restore you. The church should restore you. And brothers, amen, we pray that, don't we? But what we want to consider is, again, our own selves as we look at this. And we ask the Lord to watch over us, to protect us as we go about our daily lives. Amen? As we go about our business, may we be holy and righteous unto God. Let's pray together. Father, we... Thank you again for the word of God. And, and Father, we, we know for a fact that the word of God does indeed work in concert with the Spirit of God, who works in concert with God the Father and God the Son. <laughs> it's amazing. Again, that golden chain that is never broken. And we've seen such a contrast as Noel Webster defined it biblically. And Father, we thank you for that. And, and as the church must learn and we must be ever vigilant and hold on to the realities of the work of God in our hearts, in our lives. Father, will you keep us from the edge? Keep us from those temptations that come our way. And if need be, may we confess it to a brother or a sister to help us. Oh, Father, it is indeed just so glorious to see that you will bring us to the end, that your love is unadulterated, it's undying for us. 
And Father, we thank you for that. And we pray for others. We pray for the many who are sick this morning. And <laughs> from the way it looks, there are many who are sick. We pray for them. And we lift them up to you. And we pray, Father, that, um, that your goodness, your hand would be upon them. And Father, we, we thank you again for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We thank you for your priesthood in all of that in sending him and, and preparing the lamb as you told Abraham that you would provide a lamb for yourself and you certainly did that. We thank you for the past actions in eternity that we've seen, that your actions that indeed you adopted and chose the believer unto yourself to be your very own treasure. Father, we thank you for that. May we never forget it. Now, Lord, as we gather around the Lord's table, Howard leads us this morning in that. May we continue to consider those past actions and their ongoing, continual results. Father, we thank you now, and we love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.